our sermon text comes from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then from Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with the question, Teacher, which is the most important commandment um, in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be, as May read for us, in two passages in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 28, looking at verses 18 through 20, and we're also going to be flipping back to Matthew 22. So if you have a nice ribbon, you might want to make use of that right now and mark Matthew 22. Uh, we're going to begin our time in Matthew 28. Um, uh, whenever you uh, walked in, by the way, you should have received sermon notes. Um, if you were visiting with us for the first time, you should have received a green book. That's our gift to you. There's a yellow card in there. We would uh, ask that you fill that connection card out if you would like to connect with us more. We would love to be able to know how we can pray for you and serve you um, as you are visiting with us. We're so thankful that you are here. Last Sunday, we had a members meeting, and during that members meeting, uh, one of the things that we did is we outlined a new weekly rhythm for a few of our ministries that included a few adjustments to, to the ways that we've done things in the past. So, for example, in the past, we have always had what we call equipping classes, which is essentially discipleship training where we'll walk through books or we'll teach on various topics, typically things that we don't hit on Sunday mornings we will teach, and that's a discipleship time for children and students and adults as well. We've always done that midweek. We've done it on Wednesday nights. Um, well, obviously, a lot has changed since the last time we were in a normal rhythm, and we really want to get back into a normal rhythm. And so one of the adjustments we're making is we're moving our Wednesday evening equipping classes to Sunday morning. So the, the nature of those will be exactly the same as they were before. The difference is they will uh, take place on Sunday morning. Um, life groups. Uh, in the past, we've just, uh, you know, uh, recruited leaders, and we've had blank slates, and we've let people sign up to whatever group they wanted to be in. We wanted to be a little bit more intentional this time and create space for people in specific seasons of life. So we have four life groups that are se uh, based on season of life, um, especially with children. If you uh, are a member of Trace Crossing, you have already been signed up for a life group. So if you missed that memo last week, you are already in a life group. If you want to know what life group you're in, the easiest way to do that is to actually download an app called church center if you go on the app store you can find uh, an app called church center and if you put in our church information uh, uh, all of that will come up and you will have a tab at the very bottom of that app that will show you what group you are in um, but that's a little bit of an adjustment life groups used to meet exclusively on sunday nights 
Um, now life groups are going to be encouraged to meet whenever they want to meet. So Sunday night may, may, may work great for your group. Wednesday night may work great. It's freed up now. Maybe you meet on Monday nights. But we freed up the week for service and for life group. We uh, are adding the baby room back to the nursery. Um, that's going to start on September 12th. Um, originally, we were going to start it on uh, next Sunday, um, but we need a little bit more time to get ready for that. So on September 12th, the baby room will be added back to the nursery. If you have a child in the preschool room, they're actually going to be in here in the service for the first uh, part, right before the sermon. They won't have to sit and listen to me talk. They'll get to go to their own class and uh, have uh, video teaching there, and uh, that'll happen on September 12th. So some adjustments, uh, some new rhythms that we are starting. And last week we shared some practical and pastoral reasons why we are making these adjustments. But I do think every single fall, every single August, it is important as we begin a new ministry year for us to think about why we are able to make adjustments like that. Why can we start new ministry rhythms? Um, well, it really has to do with the place that ministries hold in the life of the church. And this is a convicting thought. But the ministries of a church tell the story of who that church is becoming. All ministries, from nursery to prayer gatherings and everything in between, are strategies that are employed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to help a church become something. What we do as a church will determine what we become as a church. But that, that begs a really important question. What determines what we do as a church? You see, we need to make sure that what we do, our ministries, keeps us on a trajectory toward who and what we want to become. So, okay, so our, our, our return to uh, some more structured ministry rhythms, that begins on September 12th, about a month from now. Between now and then, over the next four Sundays, I want us to spend significant time thinking about the foundations of our church. Our typical practice in preaching here at Trace is to walk verse by verse through Bible books, but from time to time we take a break, and we may, we may do some topical series from, from uh, time to time. We just finished a series walking through the I Am statements of Jesus. Now we're going to be focusing on the foundations of our church. Why do we exist? What is our purpose, and how can we accomplish it? I want each of us to have a clearer, a clearer why for all that we do and all that we will do for the rest of this year and beyond. Now, if you're, if you're not aware of our church's history, and if you're newer to Trace, you, you might not be, Trace Crossing has been around for 14 years. In that time, our very young church has experienced a significant amount of change, from, from shifting membership to shifting ministry practices. And we've had three lead pastors. I'm the third lead pastor of the church at Trace Crossing, and only a few of you have been here through it all. And some of you that have been here through it all are either working today or are participating via live stream. Um, but if you have been here through it all, you could probably fill a book with all the changes that have taken place in this young church. And for some of you, the trace crossing that you once knew may not feel like the trace crossing that is today. I've been a part of Trace Crossing for six of those 14 years. Um, so take my word for it. Even in that amount of time, I can tell you a lot has changed. Now, some of these changes actually 
give me much gratitude to the Lord. I'm so thankful for the ways that he has moved and worked in our midst. And of course, as is always the case when change happens, there are some changes that, that have brought me grief. I've given a lot of thought to our church and how God has so graciously chosen to use and sustain us over the years despite all of that change. And I've also thought about what hasn't changed. See, whenever you experience a series of changes, you can become change-obsessed. You become obsessed with how different things are. So it's, he it's healthy to think about what has stayed the same, what has been consistent. And, and this is going to sound crazy, but even though we've had three different lead pastors, dozens of different elder bodies, hundreds of different members who have come and gone, there is a common thread that can be traced from the early days of this church to today. And that thread is a simple vision and mission rooted in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment that we have just read. Our church, in one way or another, for 14 years, has existed to make disciples of Jesus among all people, and we have sought to grow in our love for God and for others. This has looked very differently. Again, there have been changes, but that is a common thread that has stayed the same. You see, if you're not familiar with uh, the story of Trace Crossing's uh, uh, origins, I would encourage you the next time you see him to just ask Tommy Lee about it and make sure you have about an hour because he has a story to tell, okay? He loves to tell that story. I always love to hear that story from him about how our church started. It was planted with a desire to be a whosoever church. That was the language that uh, the early planters used in, in the planting of this church. That's just another way of saying that they believe that the gospel is for everyone, and they wanted to show it and prove it in the way that they, they did life together as a church. There was a burning desire to love not only those who are easy to love, but to also love and reach those who may have never otherwise darkened the doors of a church. Now, what we haven't done consistently enough, and, and it makes sense because there's been so much change, what we haven't done consistently enough over the years is anchor our church, both her ministries and members, to this foundation. So that's what I want to try to do for us over the next four weeks here. Our church exists to make disciples, and everything that we do must serve this vision. But we need to be clearer. We need to be clearer about it, more specific. When we say we exist to make disciples, what do we mean? And what types of disciples are we trying to make? So I want to share a simple biblical foundation that our church has, in one way or another, been standing on since our beginning, that we exist to make disciples among all people, but particular types of disciples, those who love God and love other people. And we're going to break this down by first looking at the basis, the basis of who we are. If you have your notes, you've got those two sermon points for us, um, the basis of who we are and what we do as a church, and then second, I want us to consider two pillars of a church, any church, not just our church, any church's vision and mission. So basis and two pillars. All right, first, the basis of a church's vision has to be the gospel, the gospel. The foundation of everything we are and do as a church is rooted, is tethered to 
the gospel of Jesus. Now, what is the gospel? By the way, that's not a bad monthly exercise for you. To take out a piece of paper, write down the question, what is the gospel, and write out an answer to it. It's really not a bad exercise because it can be blended and confused with so many other things that are equally true, but not the gospel. What is the gospel? Very simply, I believe this is in your notes, very simply, the gospel is the good news or message that Jesus died and was raised from the dead for the redemption of mankind and for the restoration of the whole world. Jesus is king. He has universal authority over all things, including the church. He has come to restore all of creation and redeem sinners like us. He has literally come on a rescue mission to save us and bring us back to the place we once were because we had fallen from that place through our sin. And so it is through his work on our behalf that Jesus has created a new people who will live according to his agenda. That's the gospel. Jesus has come and he has done work. That's why at the beginning of the service we emphasize we are here to rest, not to work. And sometimes we, we lose that when we start thinking about ministries, we start thinking about doing things. We have to tether every single thing that we do, every work that we perform, every act of service that we, we uh, undertake. It has to be tethered to the gospel in which we confess it is on the basis of Jesus' work and not our own that we belong to God. Now, it is important to be rooted in the gospel before we start thinking about our purpose as a church because that's the exact order that we find things in Matthew 28. Look at Matthew 28 with me. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop right there. All right, so where are we in the story? If, you, if you're not familiar with the book of Matthew, this is the very end of the story. Uh, the very next page in your Bible is likely the gospel according to Mark. Um, at the end of the story, Jesus has already, he has already lived, he has already died, and he has already been raised from the dead. So after his resurrection, he is coming and he approaches the resurrected Jesus in a glorified body, physically stands before his disciples, and he declares before them, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And that is directly tied to his resurrection. Why does Jesus have all authority? Why, why is he the king of the universe? Not just because he wanted to be and declared himself to be and said he was, but because he showed that he was. He defeated both our sin and shame, and he defeated death itself. And when he walked out of the tomb, he walked out as a resurrected king with all authority in heaven and on earth. So before, the, before Jesus sends his disciples out on mission, he grounds their sending in his kingship. He doesn't just say, all right, guys, now go tell everybody what I did. He wants them to know with certainty the reason that you are able to go and live on mission for me is because I am the king. That's the basis. That's the basis of everything we saw in the book of Acts that the early church did, the resurrection of Jesus, his authority as king over the church we only exist as a church because jesus was standing before his disciples in this moment as the crucified and resurrected king to declare his universal authority over all of us jesus is the basis of our church's existence and vision and mission and we can't skip past this. If you've been in church for a while, this may seem like an obvious point, but we can't skip past it. 
the day that our church stops obsessing over Jesus, the moment that Jesus is no longer the focus of our worship gatherings, our life groups, our classes, our service opportunities, even our church budget, that's the moment that we stop functioning as a church. You lose the gospel, you lose your identity as a church. It is the basis. By declaring his authority here, Jesus is saying that his death and resurrection actually accomplished something. It actually established a kingdom, a kingdom that will never end and a kingdom for which he is the king. And now his people are to be about the king's business. So these, these, two, these two greats, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, they are only meaningful, only meaningful to us because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So very simply, we exist as a church because of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the world through Jesus. What has God done? Well, through Jesus, he died, he was raised. What will God do one day in the future? Well, one day in the future, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to set all things right. Everything will be restored. Even the creation that is groaning now will one day be fully restored and recreated. And there will be a new earth where God's people will live with him as our God in this perfect place. Because of those two bookends, what God has done and what God will do, we have guidance here for what we should do. And it parallels what God is doing. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit and through the church, is making all things new. In other words, Jesus is our why for everything we do. Why do we gather for worship weekly? Because Jesus is king. Why do we teach everything that Jesus has commanded because Jesus is king why sacrificially give of our resources our time our abilities because Jesus is king why should we serve one another because he is the king why pursue peace in a relationship that seems to be falling apart and it's easy to walk away because Jesus is king who we are as a church and what we do is not ultimately based on us it's not based on us we can have the best ideas in the world for our church. You, you, you may have wonderful ideas for our church. But our church stands here and will continue on the basis of Jesus' authority, not ours. It's not based on our goodness or our holiness or our faithfulness or our wisdom or our abilities. Jesus' work through us is based on what he has done for us, not on what we may do for him. So, in the end, we don't get to set the agenda for this church. Jesus does. He is both our captain and he is our gauge. So the gospel must be central to all we are and all we do as a church. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we exist to make more disciples of him among all people. All right, so the basis is the gospel. Second, there are two pillars I want to unpack for us. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And on these pillars, the vision and mission of a church, including our church, can stand. Let's, let's look at them one by one. All right, we're already in the Great Commission, so we're going to start here in Matthew 28. 
first point I want to make is that the vision and mission of the church stands on the pillar of the Great Commission. So one pillar, the Great Commission. Now, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus sends his disciples out on a mission. And then we see that this mission is immediately followed in the life of the disciples and in the early church. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and we've seen how they have fulfilled this mission. They are going and teaching. Let's look at it. Let's read verses 19 and 20. Here's, here's, the, here's the great commission, the mission that Jesus gives. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you in this encouraging word, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. On the basis of his authority as the resurrected king, Jesus commands his disciples to make more disciples, more followers of Jesus, bring more and more people in to, to the kingdom. Now, as many throughout the history of the church have observed, especially evangelicals over the past, you know, 150, 200 years or so, uh, defining evangelical kind of loosely, the mission and purpose of the church is found right here in the Great Commission. We exist as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, to make more disciples of Jesus. We exist as a church to both mature current disciples of Jesus and multiply more disciples of Jesus. Now, even though Jesus is really clear in his command, we have to ask this. We have to. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I have been asking and answering this question very well in my own life as I think about disciple making, but we have to ask this. What does it actually mean to make disciples? I know very few evangelical Christians that wouldn't agree that the church's mission is basically to make disciples. But when you ask them what that means, some, sometimes there are blank stares, and sometimes there are confusing answers, and sometimes there are contradictory answers. What does it mean to make disciples? Now, in the past, I don't believe that I have had a full understanding of what disciple-making actually means. In the past... I have only viewed disciple-making as a mental, intellectual exercise. And it's part of the way that, that I'm wired. I naturally think that way. I think about learning. I love to learn. I love to read. I love to think about ideas. And so when, uh, whenever I started learning about disciple-making, my first instinct is, okay, to make more disciples of Jesus means to convince more people of the truth of the gospel and then to teach, 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 teach and get right in their heads. And as one of my favorite authors would say, uh, that's kind of dangerous because people are not brains on sticks. And, and, but but that, that's how I viewed disciple-making, that it's just a transfer of biblical teaching from one mind to another. And as the information is transferred from one mind to another, disciples are made. Um, and, and teaching is obviously a very important tool in disciple-making, but it is not the totality of it. I used to think of disciple-making the way that I, I thought about school, okay? The, the structure of school made sense to me when I thought about the structure of the church and, and the process of making disciples. So, you know, Jesus is the teacher. We are his students. We learn from him. We share the news with other people. The Bible is our textbook, so we need to know it as thoroughly as we can to get as much information in our heads as we can so that we can have all the information to make all the right decisions and then therefore we can be holier, more faithful, more obedient followers of Jesus. There's a problem here, though. This view of disciple-making assumes 
that our biggest problem is ignorance when really our biggest problem is identity. Making disciples is about whole life, holistic transformation. Through Jesus, our heads, our hearts, and our hands are being renewed. When you think of making disciples, or when you think about the process of being made into a disciple, I want you to start thinking about the language of becoming, about formation, about transformation, about change. Disciple-making, though it is a command here, is actually an invitation, and it's a promise to step further and further into your new identity in Jesus. And that's why it's important for the gospel to be the basis. What do we believe has happened in the gospel? When you come to faith in Jesus, you have entered a new realm. You have entered the kingdom of heaven. You are now a citizen of heaven. You belong to Jesus. This is who you are. But sin still lingers in our hearts. And so we don't always act in consistency with the new reality, the new identity that we have. The disciple-making process is helping us, is, is the process of helping us step further and further and further into who we truly are in Jesus. It's about becoming. So it's, it's less like a classroom and more like the process of metamorphosis. Now, our family <laughs> recently has not had much luck with small animals, um, as, as, some of you, uh, as some of you know. We have had to say our goodbyes to two precious parakeets um, over, over the past six months or so. Um, but a couple years ago, we actually did a decent job of raising these caterpillars until they were uh, uh, butterflies. You know, we, we, we got this little kit, I can't remember who shared it with us, but we got this kit that um, uh, where you could you know, ha have the, the caterpillars and you just, you have them through the whole process. The reason that we did so well with them is because you really don't, have, you don't do anything. You know, I think you maybe f like give them some, some sustenance maybe early on and then they just kind of do their own thing and you just kind of sit back and, uh, and you watch it. Um, but it, it really was pretty cool. We, we bought the kit, we followed the instructions, and then within a few weeks, I can't remember exactly how long, uh, we had these little butterflies, you know, floating around in this little mesh container that we were able to release in the front yard, and it was, it was really cool. Um, now, what's really interesting to me about getting to watch the process of, of metamorphosis is that you, you know what the end result will be, right? You, you know what's, what's going to come, but on a daily basis, it, nothing seems to change. You know, it just, it seems like everything is the same. And, you know, when we first had them, we would check on them almost every day. But once they cocooned, you know, you, you almost forget about them. And they're just kind of hanging there and you forget they're there. And then one day you walk by and there's, you know, one butterfly that's flying around. And then the next day there's another and, you know, two, three, I think there was like six or seven, you know. So by that time we had to hurry and get them out. Um, but it, it was really cool. This, this animal was with the right sustenance and with the right environment slowly but surely becoming what it was created to be that is the essence of what it means to make disciples the process of disciple making is helping one another in the power of the spirit to become slowly but surely day by day what we were created to be now with this understanding of disciple-making as a process of becoming, of being transformed into who we truly are in Jesus, 
Um, the crucial question that we must answer is, what exactly are we meant to become? Because again, that's, even though it's a little more specific, it's still kind of generic. We're supposed to become. We'll become what? What are we supposed to become? And the answer to this question will give us a very firm and solid foundation from which we can launch ministries. The key to this answer comes when we combine or we synthesize the great commission with the great commandment. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we have what, what we call the great commandment. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Second, second point we want to make here is that the vision and mission of the church stands on the pillar of the great commandment. Now, in this passage, Jesus is asked a question that is meant to draw him into a debate. This was a really common questions that, uh, question that uh, Jewish religious authorities and scholars would ask, which is the greatest among the commandments. Um, there were 613 commandments in the law, and so the question is, which, one, which one's the greatest? Which one's the most important? Um, which one holds the most weight? And so they debated this frequently. And so the Pharisees, they're, all, they're constantly trying to trip Jesus up. And so they're wanting to draw him into a debate so that, you know, they can, they can out him. They can see, okay, what side are you going to land on? They're trying to, you know, create a little bit more division. They're, they're baiting him into a controversial Facebook post, you know, of sorts. And, and they're wanting him to answer it in that way. And so uh, Jesus does what he typically does. He gives them far more than they were asking. He's asked which commandment is greatest. Look at the passage with me, starting in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he gives them that they did not expect or ask for. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said that out of all the commandments in the law, these two are the greatest. He says here that to love God and to love other people is to fulfill the whole law. Loving God, Jesus' way, means loving God with all of our faculties, with every single part of us, all of who we are. We're to love God with our heads, with our hearts, with our hands, how we think, how we love, and, and what we do must be permeated by a love for God. And then loving others Jesus' way, it may be even more radical because Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And he doesn't offer any qualifiers. Have you ever thought about that with, with the great commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself? There are no qualifiers. Love your neighbor. And I love that language because, you know, of course, there, there's the famous question, well, who is my neighbor that, that's asked? But when you think about it, that word neighbor gives us a really, really great picture. Because if you think about the neighborhood in which you live and your neighbors, just picture your neighbors right now. You have some neighbors that are really close friends, right? You, you hang out together. Maybe your kids are friends. You invite them over. They invite you over. You hang out together. Um, and and you're, you're really good friends. You have other neighbors 
who, you know, you, you are yard friends with. I, that's, that's kind of the phrase that I use, where your only conversations with them happen when you're both in your own yard, you know, and so you just kind of, oh, hey, you know, how's it going? You know, you don't have anything against each other, but you're not really close either, and so you're, you're talking about, you know, dads, you talk about the yard or whatever, and, you know, the grass and the weeds and the weather and just all the small talk things that I'm not very good at. Um, but you have those conversations and those friends. Then you have neighbors that you don't even know, Right? And you, maybe you feel guilty that you don't know them, but you're always like, man, who lives in that creepy house over there? You know, I've always wondered, who, who are they? I never see them out. You know, who are these people? And then you have neighbors you don't like, right? No? Am I the am I, No? Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to out myself. But we do. We have neighbors that we don't get along with. They're hard to get along with. Maybe they're constantly coming and complaining that your grass is too high and they got the ruler out. And they're like, mm, nope, uh, too, too tall. Get, get, the, get the lawnmower out. Um, we, we have all these neighbors. Jesus says to love your neighbor. That means that equally you will love the friend that is in your living room and the person that you get into it with over the length of your grass. There, there are no qualifiers. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love them all. It's a quote I put in your notes that is just absolutely beautiful. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. And it conquers the world. The two greatest commandments to love God and to love other people. And this is where the Great Commission and the Great Commandment intersect. We are meant to make disciples who become like Jesus, who become what we were always meant to be, lovers of God and other people. Bible scholar Dan Doriani, he said, in the divine economy, God's love seeks a reply. He wants our love to answer his and to multiply so that we extend his kind of love to others. The story of the Bible and the story of the church is really all about God's love seeking a reply. We were always meant to receive, to reciprocate, and to replicate God's love. We were created for this purpose. And then through the fall of man, we stopped reciprocating God's love back to him, and we failed to replicate God's love to others. Jesus, he came to fulfill this design for humanity, and at every point in his life, he perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved other people, and now Jesus is the king, and he is recre recreating a people in his image who will receive, reciprocate, and replicate God's love once again. And here's how it connects to our to our vision and mission as a church to make disciples who love God and others. The mission of disciple making is a mission to shape one another into people, particular types of people who receive God's love, reciprocate God's love back to him, and replicate God's love to others wherever we are and in whatever we do. 
Becoming people who love God and other people is our aim, and this can only happen through Jesus. Now, the end goal will be the day when Jesus returns. Our transformation and disciple-making process will be complete, and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as his people will perfectly love God and love others. What a beautiful vision the Bible gives of God's love and that Jesus offers to his church. Our purpose is to become a community that is full of love. Our goal, our desire, must be to be known by our love for God and others. And I love this vision because when it's rooted in the gospel, it has the power to change the way that we live life together as a church. It has the power to change how we think about our role in the church. What if you viewed your participation in the life of our church from showing up on Sunday to coming to a men's prayer breakfast, to a women's ministry event, to serving in the nursery? What, what if you viewed your participation in the life of the church with a clear purpose of growing more and more into a person who loves God and others? What if you thought about coming each Sunday as a process, another step, another strategy of becoming a person who loves God and loves other people? What if the metric that we use for church health was the degree to which we are loving God and others? What if we designed ministries that helped us grow in our love and helped us show our love for God and others? We can know if we are succeeding or failing as a church by our answer to this simple question, are we making disciples who love God and other people? Are we, as individuals and collectively as a church, becoming people who receive God's love reciprocate God's love, and replicate God's love. We will have wasted our time together if all we did was learn more interesting truths about God. If that's, if that's all we're getting here, gain more knowledge, think more deeply, if that's it, we will have wasted our time together. We will have wasted our presence in Tupelo if all we did was create worship experiences that we all enjoy. We will have made a mockery of Jesus' calling on this church if all we did was develop ministries that fit our own comforts and preferences. If we are not being formed as disciples who slowly but surely keep growing in and showing love for God and others, we will miss the mark. The aim of the Great Commission, this call to make disciples, is the fulfillment of of the great commandment to become people who love God with every single part of our, ourselves and who love others as ourselves. Our greatest aim as a church then is to become, become a community of love, of love, marked by love. You feel loved in this church? That's a good sign. You love others in this church? That's, that's a good sign. When we become a community marked by our love for God and others, we will showcase his glory as his love will reverberate in and through us to others. So everything we do as a church has to be grounded in the gospel of King Jesus and for the purpose of becoming people who love God and other people. As I've, as I've thought about this, I'm really excited to continue this series. And as I, but as I've reflected on what we have done 
and what we have failed to do, I have to confess that I am prone to despair. I don't know about you, but I can think of so many ways over the past few years that I have grown cold to God, that I have grown cold to you, and I have grown cold to our city. I can think of so many times that I have failed to reciprocate God's love back to him and replicate God's love to others. I can think of opportunities that I've had to tangibly love someone that I have passed on. And that's not who I want to be. And that's not who I want our church to be. And this brings us back to the beginning. If making disciples who love God and others was left up to our strength, if this was a command that God was giving and then sitting back and waiting to see if we pass the test, we should be full of despair. Because we will never be able to live up to this calling. But here are some reasons why we can hope for the future of our church and move forward with greater intentionality in all the things that we do. First, we can move forward with hope because we can confess and repent for our failures to love God and others. The gospel makes change possible. Second, we can see in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment a firm foundation on which to dream, plan, and execute ministries that will bring God glory. And third, and this is the most important, even though we will continue to fail to, to love God back and to extend his love to others, we, we will fail to reciprocate, we will fail to replicate, we will never ever fail to receive God's love because he will never fail to send it. His love never fails. His love never ends. His love is a fountain that will never ever run dry. So let's run to this well of love and drink deeply. And then let's pray move and act in ways for his love to flow through us to others.